You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. If you pay attention to the news, you've most likely heard a sentence that started with the words, Florida man. Florida man in no seriously I have drugs t-shirts arrested for possession of drugs. Florida man charged with assault with a deadly weapon after throwing alligator through Wendy's drive through window. And Florida man gets tired of waiting at hospital, steals ambulance, drives home. And those, if you're wondering, are all real headlines from the Sunshine State. So what is it about Florida that attracts these kinds of people? Well, the short answer is because there are so many of them. Florida, you see, is the third most populous state in America, with upwards of 20 million residents and another 150 million tourists visiting each year. So really, it's just a matter of statistics. But these hijinks didn't start recently. Florida has always been a part of the news cycle, going as far back as the 1800s. About 130 miles north of Tampa Bay is a city known as Cedar Key. It's part of a cluster of islands, most of which are uninhabited today and make up a wildlife refuge protected by the government. But during the 1800s, Cedar Key was central to Floridian commerce. The Eagle Pencil Company and Eberhard Faber owned pencil mills in Cedar Key after the Civil War. It was a major port, and there was even a railroad line connected back to the mainland. But March of 1889 was when everything changed. A new mayor had been elected, and his name was William Cottrell a 33-year-old poster child for nepotism. His father had been a state senator, and his brother was a successful business owner on the island. He also managed to marry up, joining a high-society family that allowed him to move even higher in the world. But old Billy had a problem. He liked to drink. When he was sober, he was a pleasant fellow and got along with most everyone. But after a few fingers of whiskey, he was a totally different person. Mean, angry, and without restraint. As time went on, the cachet of his politically connected family, along with his own personal police force, turned Mayor Cottrell from a belligerent drunk into a full-on tyrant. With carte blanche to do as he pleased, Cottrell enjoyed loading up on booze and abusing his authority. He yelled and ranted at people seemingly at random, screaming at whoever was closest to him at the time. Often, those rants would turn into death threats against individuals that he believed had wronged him. He would also walk into his brother's general store and pull a gun on everyone inside, taking them hostage. He didn't want money, though. He just really liked terrifying people. On one awful evening, Mayor Cottrell forced several of his constituents out of their homes at gunpoint and made them all dance for him in the street. 
That gun was also used to torment the local telegraph operator, who Cottrell hated for no known reason. During one of their spats, the mayor aimed the pistol at a black resident standing off to the side and told him to beat up the telegraph operator for his enjoyment. Despite his out-of-control nature, however, Cottrell went unchallenged. Even his re-election campaign was a success. Perhaps the local populace didn't want to upset him any further, but nobody stood up to him, at least nobody in town. That wouldn't happen until the arrival of James Harvey Pinkerton. Pinkerton had been appointed the new customs agent on the island by President Benjamin Harrison. He saw firsthand how the mayor handled his official business with the locals. Pinkerton called him out on it, and the mayor handled the offense as diplomatically as he knew how. He threatened to kill Pinkerton. But that was a bad move. The average telegraph operator might have been helpless against the mayor's drunken outbursts, but not an employee of the federal government. Pinkerton wrote a detailed report of Cottrell's behavior and all the things that he spat at the agent, and then he sent it off to Washington. The report soon found its way to the president's desk. And Benjamin Harrison knew that the problem wouldn't fix itself, so he sent in some reinforcements to help. In May of 1890, the U.S. Coast Guard landed on the shores of the island to take the mayor and his goons into custody. Cottrell, having learned of his impending arrest ahead of time, fled Cedar Key for the mainland. And while the residents were happy that the mayor was now out of their lives, they wanted the Coast Guard gone too. Many of those living in Cedar Key had been supporters of the Confederacy, and they didn't like the United States government snooping around their island. But the president didn't care about their complaints. His people stuck around and helped Cedar Key install a new city government that didn't keep them paralyzed by fear. As for Billy Cottrell, he escaped to Alabama until he was finally arrested for his crimes in Cedar Key. Unfortunately, though, he never stood trial. While out on bond, he got into an altercation at a local bar and was placed in handcuffs once again. He told police chief Adolf Gerald that he would kill him once he was released and even challenged him to a duel. Mayor Cottrell, true to his words, showed up the next day in a horse-drawn carriage ready to duel, but the chief had the upper hand. As the former mayor approached him, Gerald, armed with his shotgun, fired twice at his assailant and killed him on the spot. William Cottrell was a terrible man with an even more terrible temper. He was given near-infinite power over a small city, which he wielded with impunity. But the press had the last word on his reign of terror. Newspapers everywhere published articles about Cottrell's demise, with many using two simple words to sum up everyone's feelings. Good riddance. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com. 
to start living yours. Let's get into it. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Salomon August Andre had a dream. Born in Sweden in 1854, Andre could never quite seem to get ahead. He had a degree in mechanical engineering from the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm, but came to the United States in 1876 and worked as a janitor at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. Upon his return to Sweden, he ran his own machine shop for several years until a lack of business forced him to close. Andre returned to his alma mater as an assistant in 1880, and two years later, he was invited to join a scientific expedition to the island of Spitsbergen in Norway. The trip only lasted a year, after which he found work in the Swedish patent office. In his spare time, Andre wrote extensively about air electricity, heat conduction, and various new inventions. But there was something calling to him, something out there beckoning him from behind his desk and into the great wide open, the North Pole. It came during a time known as the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration, when brave explorers risked their lives to chart Antarctica. Andre, however, wanted to be the first to reach the opposite pole, and to do so using only a hot air balloon. He'd been fascinated with balloons ever since his 1876 trip to America, when he'd run into John Wise, an American ballooning expert and true pioneer in the field. Andre was captivated by the idea of soaring over the Earth in a massive balloon, and decided that that was how he was going to reach the North Pole. So he approached the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences on February 13th of 1895. 
and he outlined his plan. He did so again five months later in London when he spoke at the 6th International Geographical Congress. He proposed using a hydrogen-filled balloon to be guided by the wind across the Arctic Sea and to the Bering Strait. From there, he and his team of two other explorers would travel over Alaska, Canada, possibly Russia, and finally across to the North Pole. He already had a balloon, too, the Svi, which he had purchased two years prior, and he'd accounted for all possible problems that might arise during the journey. He would go during the Arctic summer when the temperatures were a bit warmer. The midnight sun would allow the men to study the area all day and night without having to stop, and there wouldn't be much in the way of precipitation to weigh the balloon down during the flight. Any snow that did accumulate would simply melt at higher temperatures or get blown off by the wind. Andre first attempted the voyage north in 1896, but immediately had to cancel when the winds refused to behave. It wasn't until July of the following year when he, along with 27-year-old civil engineer Knut Frankel and physics student Niles Strindberg, were able to lift off from Norway's Danes Island. The takeoff was rocky. The brand new balloon, named the Omen Eagle, was weighed down heavily by the men, their equipment, and drag ropes. Those ropes were quickly discarded to allow them to gain altitude. Within the first few minutes, though, Andre and his team had expelled more than 1,600 pounds of essential weight to get the balloon high enough to clear the water. It was actually too much. They climbed higher and higher, reaching a peak altitude of 2,300 feet. Andre let loose several buoys with messages inside that were meant to be carried back to land on the ocean's currents. Homing pigeons were also released, each carrying a note bearing their coordinates at the time, for the papers to report on. They floated for 10 and a half hours before the balloon started to sink. What followed was another 41 hours of their basket dragging along the ground as the aircraft struggled to stay upright. They finally landed on a stretch of polar ice just 300 miles shy of the North Pole on July 14th. They had come prepared with guns, skis, a tent, and several months' worth of provisions, and so they began their trek north, hoping to reach the pole before winter. Along their journey, the three men killed and ate polar bears and seals to keep them going, all while hiking along the vast icy land. It wasn't until a few weeks later when they realized that all their marching had been in vain, as the pack ice they were on was moving in the opposite direction to where they needed to go. After that, the team changed course to make up for lost time, headed toward a remote island named White Island in October of 1897. And that was the last anyone ever heard from S.A. Andre and his two companions. For 33 years, they were assumed lost, until a Norwegian ship on a scientific expedition discovered their remains on the island of Kvitea. The crew of the vessel had come to study glaciers. Instead, they found Andre's boat, his journal, and two skeletons wearing monogram clothing. Another ship came to the island months later and located the final body as well as a box of photographic film that had been brought by Strindberg to document their journey. The three sets of remains were sent back to Stockholm and cremated, but the cause of their death was still a mystery. They hadn't succumbed to the ice, and they hadn't killed each other. After reading through their journals and notes, it was believed by doctors and experts that all three men had died of an illness brought on by eating half-cooked polar bear meat. Although he didn't quite make it to the North Pole, S.A. Andre was viewed as a hero back home in Sweden. He and his team were celebrated for giving their lives in the name of science. A documentary novel published in the 1960s, however, posited that Andre had actually been afraid to let down the Swedish press and public, and so he carried on with the expedition regardless of his own misgivings. 
whatever the case, Andre died an explorer. He got himself out of the patent office and into the thick of it. He may not have reached the North Pole, but he inspired many others after him to keep trying. Just not by hot air balloon. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.